The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds, because they need opening. Open us to your word as it's read and proclaimed, as it echoes to us down through the centuries, as it lights the path before us. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today, in addition to being Confirmation Sunday, is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. Lent stretches from Ash Wednesday this past week all the way to Easter, 40 days. Many Christians approach the season of, of Lent as a time of deprivation. They give up or try to give up chocolate, alcohol, caffeine. Ironically, though, the roots of Lent point us in the opposite direction. From its earliest observance, Lent has been a time when Christians encourage each other to take something on, to take on spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, to take on fasting and prayer, service and study. This Lent in worship, we are going to take on the question, what does it mean to live an authentic life? Now, You've probably noticed that authenticity is having a big moment in our society. It pops up in advice columns, it's featured in news stories, it hovers around the conversations that we have with our closest friends and family. Authenticity is everywhere. It makes sense. Too many of the stories we've heard have turned out to be fabricated. Too many facts thrust at us have been unveiled as fake. Too many people have played us for fools. The needles on our trustometers are low, low, low. We've got a wandering through the desert hunger for things that are real and true. We crave authentic experiences. We want to have authentic relationships. We yearn to be authentic people. But what does that mean? Well, says British professor of psychology Stephen Joseph, the first step toward being authentic is to know yourself. The first step toward authenticity is an honest self-reflective answer to the question, who am I? And that's the inquiry we're going to pursue this morning. 
As we start our work together, let us listen now for God's word as it echoes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. And and I'm going to start the reading just a little bit before the text printed in your bulletin starts. I'm going to add the very end of Matthew chapter 3, and then your bulletin picks up with the beginning of chapter 4. Listen now for God's word to you. When Jesus had been baptized just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash a foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left Jesus and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Who are you? Has anybody ever held a mirror up before your eyes? Has anybody ever described you to you? Confermans, you know what I'm talking about. Every report card is a mirror of sorts. You're told this collection of grades matters. It's important. It paints a picture of who you are. My high school friend Sean once tossed his crumpled semester grades into the trash, saying, this is not me. And he was right, mostly. (laughs) Academic grades are not the only or even the most accurate way to paint a person's portrait. There's more to us than a transcript. And yet, the evaluations keep coming, don't they? 
The fun house mirrors don't stop with high school. You know where I'm going, don't you? In this world, everyone, teachers and classmates, bullies and besties, parents and pastors, co-workers and bosses, Facebook friends and anonymous trolls, everyone is eager to tell you who you are. One of my favorite movies is The Way Way Back. The title of the film refers to the third seat in a 1970 Buick Electra station wagon. You know the one I'm talking about, the one where the third seat flips up and faces backwards. As the movie opens, the main character, Duncan, a rumpled 14-year-old, rides in the way, way back of the wagon. His mom is asleep in the front in the passenger seat while her unsavory boyfriend, Trent, drives. As they churn along, Trent looks in the mirror and fires a question toward the way, way back at Duncan. Duncan, on a scale of one to ten, what do you think you are? Warily, Duncan responds, I don't know. What don't you know, Trent prods, one to ten, pick a number. The boy shrugs, a six, hmm. Trent replies, when I look at you, I see a three. I don't see you putting yourself out there, bud, meeting kids your own age. And from what your mom tells me, you just hang around the apartment all day. To me, that's a three. Let's see if we can get the number up a little this summer. As the car rolls along, a pained expression washes over the boy's face. Your heart breaks for him and for all the soul-stomping evaluations being handed out in station wagons and classrooms and cubicles around the world. I've been there. Social media, anonymous letters, angry emails. Since coming to New York almost 12 years ago, I've been called a devil, a hack, a moron, and other choice descriptors probably not appropriate to this pulpit. It's a brutal world. People slap a caustic label on you in a heartbeat. Everyone seems eager to share their wisdom, to tell you and the world who you are. You are three. The maelstrom of feedback out there can grind a person down. At the very least, it conjures up doubts. Is that what people think of me? Is that really who I am? Have you ever looked in a mirror and asked, who are you? There are days when we don't even recognize ourselves. We've all heard People say, I, I need to take some time off and find myself. And, and actually, there are days when a quest to locate the real me makes a whole lot of sense. Have you been there? Have you ever been working as fast as you can, keeping the plate spinning, putting one foot in front of another, an anonymous cog in some vast machine, surviving but, but not really thriving? Have you ever looked up in the midst of life's chaos 
and said, what am I doing here? Who am I? This past week, I sat in my office listening as an incredibly thoughtful soul poured out her story, the story of this past January when her husband of 30 years on a Caribbean vacation died of a heart attack. She was working her way through a box of tissues, exposing the tip of an iceberg of grief. When she paused, she looked up at me, her eyes full of tears. She said, Scott, I feel like I have to figure out who I am all over again, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that alone. Who are you? Albert Camus, the French existentialist thinker, obsessed over this question. In, in one of his early works, The Myth of Sisyphus, Camus wrote about the huge challenge that faces us when we try to answer, when, when we try to say who we are. And this is what Camus said. If I try to seize this, this self of which I feel sure, if I try to define and summarize it, it is nothing but water slipping through my fingers. I can sketch one by one all the aspects it's able to assume, this upbringing, this origin, this ardor, these silences, this nobility, this vileness. But these aspects cannot be added up. This very heart, which is mine, will forever remain indefinable to me between the certainty I have of my existence and the content I try to give to that assurance, the gap will never be filled. Forever I shall be a stranger to myself. Forever I shall be a stranger to myself. Is Camus right? Is that what you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see a stranger? A friend, a friend once told me that whenever she goes to a party and someone asks, why are you here? Who are you? She plays a little game. She always tries to give a different answer. She's, she's floated answers that are designed to impress. She's offered answers meant to be quirky and funny and mysterious. Eventually, she confessed, I realized something. I wasn't playing a game. I was hunting for an answer that makes sense, something solid, something I could say with certainty. This is who I am. She's not alone in this search, is she? My father, my father was into astrology. Early on, he told me, as a teenager, he told me that based on my birthday, I was a Leo, August. This, my dad said, means certain things about you. Astrology, he explained, could, could predict my personality, my likes, my dislikes, my strengths, my weaknesses, my friends, my loves. Astrology was a signpost in a confusing world. Who are you? The answer 
is written in the stars. Is it? <laughs> it probably had something to do with all the times the newspaper mistakenly predicted, today for you, Leo, love is in the air. But eventually I decided that the Zodiac was more hokum than help. And I went in search of a more scientific approach to human identity. I turned to the personality matrix developed by Catherine Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Myers, the Myers-Briggs type indicator. It, it's a psychological test that, that sorts people into a four by four grid, 16 different personality types, and, and these Types mirror the grid developed by Swiss psychologist Carl Jung. I took the test, I was placed on the grid, I was, the readout informed me, an ENFJ. Did this solve everything? <laughs> I wish I could say it did, but honestly, Myers-Briggs soon felt like astrology without the cool animal signs. It, it, it raised more questions than it answered. It, it felt sort of restrictive, like a salesperson trying to, to jam a, a shoe a size and a half too small onto my foot. The, the test asked me, for example, the test asked me which I enjoyed more. One, a dinner party with dear friends. Or two, time alone reading a good book. I wanted to answer, it depends. The, the test asked, which is more important, getting a job done on time or getting a job done right? I wanted to respond, how about both? <laughs> German philosopher Martin Heidegger argued that the world is forever trying to slot individuals into convenient categories. It wants to tell you who you are, how to behave, what to buy, what to wear, who to like, and who to despise, too. In his philosophical opus, Being and Time, Heidegger describes the powerful ways in which the world tries to assimilate us. This is what he writes. We take pleasure and enjoy ourselves as they take pleasure. We read and see and judge art and literature as they see and judge art and literature. We find shocking what they find shocking. Who are you? You are someone, says Heidegger, the world is trying to shape. An omnipresent they wants to sand down your, your idiosyncrasies. They want to tame your most important commitments. They want you to be like them. What could be more inauthentic? The Gospel of Matthew agrees. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. And in this service, earlier, I read the classic text for the start of Lent, the story of Jesus being baptized and then led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Out there, in the desert, the good book tells us, Jesus fasted for 40 days. At the end of it, 
he is utterly famished. And this, of course, is when the devil shows up. The tempter goes to work at an opportune time. He looks at the hungry man and says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus responds, no, I'm going to cling to God's word. That's the food I need right now. It's enough. The angle the devil's trying to work here seems patently obvious, right? You're hungry, Jesus. Why don't you use your power to whistle up a meal? Why not? The temptation here is for Jesus to use his power in like a trivial manner, in a way that God does not intend. Maybe. Maybe that's the temptation. Waft the scent of fresh baked bread under the nose of a person who hasn't eaten in weeks and their stomach will growl. If that person has the power to make bread appear, they'll be tempted. But is that the only thing tempting Jesus? The story of Jesus in the wilderness comes right on the heels of the story in which Jesus is baptized right after the heavens open and God declares this is my beloved son my friends the good book is making a point by putting these stories right next to each other they're linked the devil isn't simply tempting Jesus to do a little magic the devil wants to stir up doubts about what just happened the devil does this by asking Jesus, who are you? Some say, after all the pyrotechnics down by the river, that you're the son of God. But I've got to say, I'm not convinced. When I, when I look at you, I see a poor, starving sap whose prospects look out and out grim. Trust me, you're not destined for a throne. Continue down this path and people are going to revile you. They're going to dismiss your teachings. You've got failure, my friend, written in those dry brown eyes. At this, the prince of darkness leans in. He whispers in Jesus' ear. He goes for the kill. If you are the son of God, and that's a pretty big if, why not prove it? If you're the son of God, why don't you embrace it? Why don't you wave your wand and create a feast? Why don't you jump off a cliff and startle everybody by floating through the air? Listen, says the devil, I'll tell you why you won't do any of those things. You're a total mess. You're a starving, dirty, delirious little man. Jesus, on a scale of one to ten, you look to me like a three. Do you want to improve your number? I'll show you how to do it. You need to learn how to chase the stuff that matters. Wealth, safety, security, power, dominion. It can all be yours. Come on, says Satan, licking his lips, closing the sail. You know you want it. Worship me. 
take pleasure as they take pleasure. Like what they like. Be afraid when they are afraid. The devil's approach here is simple. He, he, he tempts Christ by asking, who are you? Who are you really? He raises questions about Christ's choices and Christ's identity. He recommends that, that Christ sand down the edges of his ethics. Satan sidles up to the newly baptized Son of God and offers him a new ID card. Who are you, says the, says the devil? Not, Jesus replies, what you think. J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter novels are situated, as many of you know, at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Hogwarts is a magical castle where students learn to use their extraordinary gifts. It's also the base of operations for some pretty fantastic adventures. Now, one of the reoccurring moments in these novels revolves around the fact that whenever new students arrive at Hogwarts, they are assigned to one of four residential houses. These are the places where they will study and sleep and socialize during their years at the academy. And each of these four houses has a historical reputation, a patron ghost, and a set of virtues near and dear to the residents' hearts. Rowling describes House Gryffindor as the home of the daring and the brave. House Slytherin is the residence of the ambitious and cunning. House Ravenclaw is where the studious and wise lay their heads, while House Hufflepuff is the gathering place for those who are loyal and just. New students at Hogwarts are told that they do not get to choose the house that they will live in. Instead, this determination will be made for them by a magical sorting hat. Before declaring each student's fate, the animated hat begins the sorting ceremony with a poem. Slip me snug around your ears, I've never yet been wrong. I'll have a look inside your mind and tell where you belong. When the main character, Harry Potter, puts on the hat, he begins to repeat quietly, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. Mulling it over, the hat suggests that Harry does in fact have ambition and could thrive in House Slytherin. Still, Harry keeps up his mantra. Okay, the hat concludes, then it must be Gryffindor. Still, Harry worries. He wonders if the hat made a mistake. And, and later in the books, he confesses this worry to the school headmaster, Albus Dumbledore. In a defeated, frightened voice, Harry says, the sorting hat only put me in Gryffindor because I asked not to go in Slytherin. Exactly, responds Dumbledore, B 
beaming at the boy. It's our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are, far more than our abilities. J.K. Rowling's onto something. In the end, it isn't a magical hat. It isn't the stars in the sky. It isn't some sophisticated personality test. It's our choices. What will we embrace? What will we reject? Will we walk down the well-traveled path? The, the devil promises us that this smooth road leads to, to all the stuff that matters. Or will we embrace odd promises that come from on high, an identity grounded in love, an approach that the world will often say is out of step. In the Avett Brothers song, High Steppin', the brothers sing about being strangers in the world, out of sync with other people's expectations. Eventually, they conclude the song with these lyrics. The best beggars are choosers. The best winners are losers. The best lovers ain't never been loved. And first place ain't easy. The hardest part is believing. The very last word is love. No. Jesus says to the devil, no, I don't believe I'll be swallowed up by your categories. You see, I've got this baptism. I've got this calling. I've got this relationship with God. This is the path I'm walking. This is who I am. At the end of the movie, The Way Way Back, Young Duncan finally tells someone, his friend Owen, about the belittling incident in the car. I hate him. Who? My mom's boyfriend. And then, through the tears, Duncan chokes out. He called me a three. He asked me to rate myself on a score of one to ten, and then he called me a three. Who says that to somebody? Quickly, Wisely, Owen responds, someone who doesn't know you. My friends, there are dark forces out there trying to tell you who you are and what you ought to care about. Do they know you? Have they claimed you? Have they told you that the very last word is love? And go from this place and into a holy Lent in the abiding knowledge and trust that you too are a child of God. Go knowing the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. 
If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.